Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. As mandated by international law, two guests today. The Palestinian-American scholar and journalist Rami Khoury will talk about the war, and Evelyn McDonald will talk about her new book on Joan Didion. My first guest is Rami Khoury, a distinguished public policy fellow at the American University of Beirut. He's a Palestinian-American journalist and scholar who's covered the Middle East for about 50 years. He's here to offer a perspective missing in the Western media, and what he has to say might scandalize some listeners, but I think it should be heard. His views of Hamas and the Iranian government are sunnier than mine. I'll have more to say about Hamas after the interview, but he quite explicitly says Israel should continue to exist, living peacefully side by side with a Palestinian state. Rami Khoury. What were Hamas's political goals in the October 7 attack? What, what were their motives? Their motives have been pretty consistent throughout their existence is to force the Israelis and behind them the Americans and others into a, a serious attempt to uh, resolve the Israeli-Palestinian-Israeli-Arab conflict, which has gone on now since uh, the late 40s, and to end the occupation of uh, the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem and you know Palestinian-occupied territories from 67 and negotiate a resolution of the refugee problem. And that would allow then a situation where Israel could exist in peace and recognition as a Jewish majority state, which it is now, and the Palestinians could exist in peace in their own state adjacent to it with a resolution of their outstanding uh, issues, the main one being their exile and refugeehood and occupation. Now, I think a lot of American and Israeli analysts are seeing a role of uh, Iran in here, the hand of Iran in this. Uh, how, how does Iran figure into it? Well, American and Israeli analysts see Iran in their dreams and, and when they walk the dog and, and every part of their life. They're totally obsessed with it. I live in the U.S. now. I've been, I've come, I've been coming and going for 40 years, but I've been here the last uh, three years. I live in the Boston area. So I, I follow American politics and media very closely. And uh, the official, the United States Americans, I should say, the government, and most of the mainstream media which follows the government, uh, are totally uh, obsessed with Iran. They're hysterical. Uh, they see Iran behind every possible thing in the Middle East that they don't like. Before that, of course, they used to look at uh, the Russians. They used to look at uh, Hezbollah. They looked at uh, other bad guys in their view. Uh, the U.S. always needs a bad guy, a threat, against which it mobilizes political activity and often military activity, military directly by the U.S. or through proxies in the region. And Iran is that bad guy now. So I don't believe that Iran is interested in engaging in a war with Israel. They'd be nuts if they were to do that because Israel has so much power. The U.S. would immediately join it against Iran. And of course, Israel has nuclear weapons, which they wouldn't hesitate to use. If they thought that they were under some kind of existential threat, they would nuke whoever is attacking them. We can see what they're doing in Gaza, which is essentially doing uh, what nuclear weapons do, destroy a whole society, but they're doing it with conventional weapons. And the world is sitting around not just watching. The US and many Western powers are, are actively helping Israel carry out its activities, which now most international agencies, credible international groups, call genocide. So the, the Iranians would be nuts to try to get into a war with Israel. What the Iranians are doing and have been doing since the Islamic Revolution took over in 79 is make sure that Iran is not uh, subjected to the kind of colonial mistreatment, uh, threats, uh, sanctions, and attacks, which are going on all the time, Israelis and probably the CIA are, are killing Iranian scientists. And so they, they're, they're fed up with that. They don't, they're trying to figure out how do you stop that from happening. And they've done it by developing a network of very powerful allies. Some people call them proxies. Some people call them 
uh, clients, call them whatever you want or whatever they want. Uh, but people like Hezbollah and Hamas and the Ansarullah, which is the Houthis in Yemen, and smaller groups in Syria and Iraq, Iran has a very coordinated network now of organizations, militant groups around the Middle East uh, who are very able, they're very capable people, regardless of what you think of them, especially Hezbollah and Hamas, but they have developed great technical military capabilities. Hezbollah has now forced Israel into a detente ceasefire on the Lebanon-Israel border. This is incredible. No Arab state has been able to do it. Israel and Hezbollah are both prepared for an all-out war if it comes, but they'd rather not do it because they know it'll lead to massive destruction in both societies and civilians and national infrastructure would be the first victims. And there's no reason to cause that kind of massive damage if it's not going to solve anything. And of course, it's not going to solve anything. Uh, Israel has been trying to deal militarily with Hamas and Hezbollah for many, many uh, years, well, 30 years or so, and it, it doesn't work. They only develop stronger capabilities, the Arab groups, and, and they do so partly because Iran helps them and other people help them, and partly because they're motivated to get Israel off their back. You know, the thing that Hezbollah and Hamas have in common is that they were both occupied and subjugated by Israel. Israel occupied South Lebanon and occupied Gaza. Hezbollah was able to force the Israelis out of South Lebanon into a detente, into a, an unspoken uh, deterrent truce. And Hamas is trying to do the same thing. Hamas is trying to force the Israelis to end its siege of Gaza and its every four or five years massive bombing and destruction in Gaza. Uh, and they feel the only way they can do this is by taking uh, military action, which they did on October 7, to get Israel's attention, to get the world's attention, to shake up a situation that was looking like it was never going to change, that Israel would maintain the siege, control what food and water and trade and comes in and out of, of Gaza, and they, they will not stand for it. Uh, so they took their... Uh, military action in a way that really surprised everybody, shocked the Israelis, shattered all the former military doctrines that Israel had assumed had subjugated and subdued the uh, Arabs and, and pushed them into uh, acquiescing in their own disappearance from history and totally reversed the concept uh, in the Arab world of what Arabs can do especially what Hamas can do and Palestinians in Gaza under their siege, what they can do to fight for their rights. Uh, so we have a whole different situation now. The whole world is talking about Hamas. Uh, the whole world is looking at the Israel-Hamas uh, confrontation as a possible trigger to a wider regional conflict, which I don't think is going to happen. Uh, but that's that's what basically... Hamas has been trying to do, and they've been trying to do this for about 20 years. Um, it's nothing new. It's what's The only thing that's new here is the extent to which they were able to shatter the exaggerated Israeli sense of its own security and power and excellence and military and intelligence and defense and electronics and all that. Uh, Hamas, you know, shattered this Israeli sense of invincibility. And the Israelis are reeling. They're really, if you read what's going on in Israel, they're really confused. They don't quite know how to respond to this. The only thing they are united on is they want to use massive military force to create massive destruction and human suffering and death in Gaza. They're trying to starve children and civilians to death. And the world is doing almost nothing about it. And this sends the message that it's not just Israel that's the problem. It's much of the Western world that supports Israel. So Hamas is, and others have to think, well, how do we get out of this situation? They, they thought that a, a, an attack like this would get the world's attention, get Israel's attention. Uh, we don't know what the consequences are going to be of the October 7 attack and of the consequent much, much more destructive and barbaric uh, Israeli assault against uh, the people uh, in Gaza. We have no idea where this is going, uh, but the process has started and uh, we'll just have to watch it. What do you think Israel's goal in this savage campaign is? Is it just pure blind fury and revenge or is there a strategy that, behind it? 
it's a couple of things. There is a blind fury and revenge because uh, they were so shocked and so bewildered by what happened that they just thought that you know being even more violent and savage would uh, cause Hamas to disappear. Uh, but also more important than that is that Zionism, which is the political philosophy that came out of colonial racist Europe in the late 19th century, which was the driving force for the creation of the state of Israel, Zionism always had as its core and still does today in the form of the state of Israel, a desire to get rid of the Palestinians, throw them out of Palestine, where the Palestinians, Arab Palestinians were about 93% of the population around 1920, say about you know, 100 years ago, Palestine was 93% Arab and around 6-7% Jewish. There always was a local Jewish, indigenous, Arab Jewish. I mean, it's very peculiar because these were people who spoke Arabic and did, did uh, work in Arabic and everything, but they were Jewish by religion. And they were like the Arabs back in 1920 and, or 1910. They were under the Ottoman Empire. Palestine wasn't the state. It was a province of the Ottoman Empire. But the Zionist movement started a process by which a plan was set in motion to try to get rid of the Arabs in Palestine, physically throw them out, and put in their place an Israel, a Jewish state, which happened in '48, uh, called Israel. So the, the plan of Zionism and Israel, the strategy is, has always been and continues to be, how do we get rid of the Palestinians in Palestine? How do we ethnically cleanse them? It's what the United States did um, in the 19th, 18th century when they came into the 17th and 18th century when they came to the U.S. from, from Europe and, and wiped out the indigenous Native Americans, moved them out of their lands and created what is now the United States. Uh, and colonial movements do this. They physically kill or remove indigenous populations so that they can have their... Uh, their own state. And so that's that's what they want. That's what Israel wants. They wants to try to push the Palestinians out. And we're seeing in Gaza today an extraordinary example of the Israelis openly saying, some Israelis, ministers and others, openly saying, let's get the Palestinians in Gaza to go to the Sinai Peninsula, which is Egyptian territory. Let them live there and get them out of Gaza. That'll solve solve our problem. Uh, but of course, it won't solve the problem because this has been going on since 1948 when the pre-state Jewish Zionist uh, military groups and then the state of Israel's military constantly attacked Palestinians and killed them, prisoned them, uh, or threw them out, evicted them from the land. And this has only generated, since the late 1940s, has only generated more virulent, more effective, more technically proficient and more determined opposition to the state of Israel's policies and a determination by Palestinians to keep struggling peacefully, militarily, diplomatically, in any way they can, to achieve their rights in Palestine, to reverse their refugeehood and exile, and to create a situation where the Israeli state continues to exist. We've accepted that Israel can exist in its 67 borders, but a Palestinian state has to be created, or some combination of those things that they negotiate. Maybe there'll be one confederated state. Maybe there'll be something else. But uh, So that's uh, the, the Israeli plan is to physically remove the Palestinians from Palestine. And Hamas is the last and most effective, at least let's say most powerful, Palestinian group that is fighting back on this. We don't know where it's going to go, and hopefully at some point it will shift into a diplomatic political negotiation, but it's unlikely to do that soon because the U.S. is actively uh, helping Israel in its military goals to deny the Palestinians the opportunity to remain in their own country. And the uh, much of the Western world is also supporting Israel. But at some point, as happened in South Africa, when F.W. de Klerk realized that his apartheid system simply was not sustainable, the rulers in South Africa back then, the white racist rulers, or the Zionist apartheid racist rulers in Israel today, at some point they should realize that what they're doing is not sustainable, cannot be enforced militarily, and can only be resolved through a 
political negotiation that treats everybody equally. And this is what, uh, what we're asking for. I'm speaking with Rami Khoury, the Palestinian-American scholar and journalist. How do you uh, explain the intense U.S. support for Israel um, when Arab nationalism and communism were important forces in the region? You could see the importance from a U.S. imperial point of view of using Israel to fight them. But what is driving um, this intense, unquestioning support now? That's a very good question that I don't think anybody has fully answered. And uh, I've asked this a lot. I've looked into it. I've discussed it with people. Uh, we don't have the clear answer to that. The American government, or if you look at the British, the French, whatever, they won't give you an honest answer, or they won't give you a complete answer. But it, it includes several components. It's political, it's economic, it's it has to do with electoral politics in the U.S., it has to do with strategic issues uh, globally, it has to do with a sense of guilt, because the, the U.S. totally refused to accept Jewish refugees in Europe when Hitler was on the rise and uh, the Jews were begging the U.S., please let us in, let us in. And the U.S. wouldn't uh, because it's an anti-Semitic, racist political elite. Not everybody, but that was the, the main driver. And they didn't want all these Jews to come to the United States. So they basically said, no, you can't come in. And that increased the flow to Palestine, which created the conflict that we have now between uh, Israel and the Palestinians. So guilt for the behavior, how, how the West behaved during the Holocaust, not helping the Jews, guilt for anti-Semitism, strategic gains. They feel Israel is a great strategic ally in military terms and other terms. Of course, it's not a strategic ally at all, because every time the U.S. had a problem in the Middle East and had to come in like to Iraq or to Syria or against ISIS or against Afghanistan, whenever the U.S. had to come into the Middle East, it told the Israelis, step aside. Don't get in the way. The U.S. will do its own job militarily. So this idea that Israel is a strategic ally is a bunch of nonsense. It's uh, the kind of nonsense that shapes American policy in the region and is widely accepted in, in the United States, both among the political elite and the public, both of whom are pretty ignorant of these realities in the region and don't want to say so because the the biggest fear of American politicians, and this is based on their experience, is to criticize Israel and then you'll be called an anti-Semite and that will ruin your political career. That happened to Chuck Percy, it happened to Paul Finley, it happened to quite a few other politicians. That accusation scares the daylights out of American politicians, which uh, rightly so, because anybody who's called an anti-Semite is probably a bad guy if the accusation is true. Uh, the trouble now is that Israel is calling all kinds of people anti-Semites here in the U.S. Uh, simply because they criticize Israel's policies, not because they're really anti-Semites. And this is one of the great, great challenges and dilemmas that Israel faces today, that its strategy of uh, maintaining its strong influence in the West, uh, it's no longer as effective as it used to be across society and all kinds of people in the U.S., if you just take the U.S., but this applies to most Western societies, if you look at the education sector, you look at the media, you look at labor unions, you look at churches, professional associations, business, look at any sector of society, most of the public opinion in the United States and these sectors is moving towards a more even-handed position where people say Israel and Palestinians should have equal rights. The U.S. should support negotiated peace, giving them both equal rights. 30, 40 years ago, when I was in college, 50 years ago here, you would have 80% of Americans saying Israel is right and the, and the Arabs are evil supporters of back then the Soviet Union. and other. So the Zionists and the American government would label any Arab country that they didn't like as an image of the bad guy in the world at that time. Back then it was the Soviets, then it was terrorists, then it was uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, uh, then it was uh, ISIS and uh, Qaeda. Uh, today, for instance, you see the Israelis picked up by Biden and, and the American political elite saying, well, Hamas is like ISIS, we've got to fight them. They're not anything like ISIS, they're totally different. But this is something that American uh, politicians are terrified of, of being labeled anti-Semites. The Israelis have been really successful at deceiving the American public and uh, pushing their propaganda and uh, getting tremendous support. No other country in the world has been able to get the kind of support 
that it has from the U.S. And before that, of course, they did something similar in England back in the ni- in 19-teens and 20s when they needed British colonial support to establish Israel in the first place, to support the Zionist movement, to issue the Balfour Declaration in 1917 to prevent the um, Arabs from stopping large-scale migration of Jews into Palestine when it became clear that the that the Jews wanted to actually create a Jewish state, not just to come and live in peace as Jewish communities in Palestine had always lived in peace with their Muslim and Christian Palestinian neighbors. So, I mean, there's a combination of all of those and, and other things that I think explains why there is this tremendous support for Israel in the West. And if you look around the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world is critical of what Israel is doing and supports the Palestinian Arab view that we should have equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians. Why the U.S. and the West don't do that is a big mystery uh, because they claim to be the purveyors of the rule of law and democracy and equality and human rights, but they're not. We're seeing a real uh, shift now. There's a, a movement in the world and in the region to have Israel and some and the U.S. and some of its Western supporters in one camp and the vast majority of the rest of the world in another camp. But because Israel and the West are so powerful militarily, uh, they go around using that power. Um, you know, the U.S. tried it in Afghanistan, they tried it in Vietnam, they tried it in Iraq. Uh, and it doesn't work. You can't bomb people into acquiescing in their own disappearance from history. In the U.S., we've seen people losing their jobs in classic McCarthyite fashion for having said mild things like Palestinians are human beings, and maybe a ceasefire would be a good thing. You touched on this some, but I'd like to hear more. I'm wondering if ruling elites are feeling their hegemony slipping away, especially among younger people, and that might be behind the severity of the reaction. How do you read it? I read it uh, exactly like you explained it. I think the pro-Israeli, pro-Zionist forces in the U.S., sincere as they may be, uh, are also slightly hysterical. They're slightly desperate. They see that their strategy over the last, really, uh, it's really a hundred years since the Balfour Declaration of, of 1917 until today, their strategy has been to tell a story about Israel. And that story is partly true, but heavily based on lies, misinformation, exaggeration, distortion, diversion to convince the, the U.S., the government at least, and the, the West, that Israel is a great, wonderful, peaceful, democratic place, uh, and the Arabs are the epitome of evil and the latest image of ISIS and al-Qaeda. That strategy worked for a long time, but in the last 10 years, it has frayed. It has, it has reached its expire-by date because the world sees what Israel is doing. The colonization has never stopped in Palestine. It's still going on. They're still taking land from people in the West Bank, setting up new Jewish uh, settlements, Israeli settlements. They're trying to get the Palestinians out of Gaza. The techniques that the pro-Israeli groups use are having much less impact. If you look at professional associations, the Anthropological Society or the U.S. and people like that, they vote on uh, uh, resolutions to criticize what Israel is doing as apartheid, and they get 70% voting yes. And these are smart, intelligent, decent people. They're not anti-Semites. They're just people who know the facts of the world. And labor unions, churches, look at the churches, the mainstream churches, except for the fundamentalists uh, who have their own reasons for uh, supporting Israel. The uh, majority of American citizens are much more even-handed and reasonable and cannot be frightened by the traditional Israeli pressures or inducements um, to support uh, what Israel is doing. The the exception is the White House, much of Congress, and some state houses, the political elite, because the political elite is is shaking in in its boots when they are threatened or they think they might be accused of being anti-Semitic or being supporting terrorists and these kinds of accusations uh, or supporting Iran. I mean, these kinds of accusations end the political career for people. So that's just for the politicians, but for the society as a whole, uh, things are are getting uh, much more even-handed. And even politicians now have been able to shatter this uh, tradition. So you look like somebody like Bernie Sanders, who happens to be Jewish, but that's not really the issue. He speaks out uh, critically about how the U.S. support for Israel is allowing it to do what it does, and that needs to be uh, improved. 
and other politicians, uh, some of them are uh, Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, and others are just plain old white wasp, Protestant, Catholic, whatever Americans. Um, and they're slowly, slowly being more critical of Israel and asking for an even-handed resolution of the conflict. And of course, the Israelis come right back and say, oh, they hate Jews, they're trying to wipe Jews out and they want to not allow the Jews to live in peace anywhere in the world, which is a lie. But their lies have worked well for many years, uh, and they're working less well now, and they know that. And that's why this extraordinary movement now to uh, really silence uh, anybody who speaks out uh, for Palestine and critical of Israel's, and they're, they're criticizing Israel's policies. They're not criticizing the idea of a Jewish state or the Jewish people. They're criticizing what Israel is doing now. They killed 700 people two nights ago. In one day, they killed 700 Palestinians. About 2,000 children have died in the last uh, two and a half weeks or so. It's unbelievable. And that's what people are criticizing, the apartheid uh, settler colonial racism that is the official Israeli policy being implemented. And people are fighting back against that, too. And this is a really important new reality. There's Palestinian legal institutions, political groups, uh, social mobilization, social media work, political action groups, people on campus now when Zionist groups try to shut down a Palestinian voice or a pro-Palestinian voice, the Palestinians fight back. So the landscape is not a open virgin area where uh, Zionists can come in or anybody else can come in uh, with their lies and distortions. Uh, the landscape now is full of people who know what's going on in the Middle East, support equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians, and say so. And that the Israelis, they can't handle this. They don't know how to deal with this. So they just double down on their, on their uh, old policies. And that's where we are today. That was the Palestinian-American scholar and journalist Rami Khoury. He is, among other things, a distinguished public policy fellow at the American University of Beirut. As I said in the introduction, Khoury's views of Hamas and the Iranian government are sunnier than mine. The Iranian government, while rightly resisting foreign colonial pressures, is also a repressive theocracy that is not my ideal of a virtuous regime. And Hamas, while a leader in resisting Israeli repression of Palestinians, is hardly the model of a virtuous regime either. The October 7 attack, which initially looked like a prison break, degenerated into an unpardonable attack on civilians in violation not only of the laws of war, but basic human rights. Though there's been a reticence on the left to say that, it should be said. I find these words from W.H. Auden's poem, September 1, 1939, very helpful in understanding the October 7th action. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Israel's reaction to that attack has been a horrendous orgy of violence. I'll rely on the Financial Times, as sober an establishment of source as they come, to describe it. Israel has responded with a ferocious bombardment of Gaza that has killed more than 6,500 people and injured more than 17,400, according to Palestinian officials. Israel has also severely curtailed supplies of electricity, water, and food to Gaza, exacerbating already dire humanitarian conditions in the impoverished enclave, which has been subjected to a crippling blockade since Hamas seized power in 2007. Seized power is an incomplete description. Hamas won an election in Gaza in 2006 by a 44-41 margin, a result that shocked the U.S. and Israel. In reaction to Hamas's victory, according to reporting by Vanity Fair, the U.S. provided arms and funding for Fatah, an organization famous for having once been led by Yasser Arafat, to launch a coup against the Hamas regime. It failed, and Hamas took over, and it has ruled without a subsequent election since 2007. Here's a bit from that Vanity Fair report. Within the Bush administration, the Palestinian policy set off a furious debate. One of its critics is David Wormser, the avowed neoconservative who resigned as Vice President Dick Cheney's chief Middle Eastern advisor in 2007, a month after the Gaza coup. Wormser accuses the Bush administration of engaging in a dirty war in an effort to provide a corrupt dictatorship with victory. He believes that Hamas had no intention of taking Gaza until Fatah forced its hand. That's the end of the Vanity Fair quote. After Hamas took power, Israel tightened the screws on Gaza. Perversely, Hamas's assumption of power was welcomed by Israel. According to a Haaretz report of a WikiLeaks cable, the head of army intelligence was quite satisfied with Hamas's seizure of the Gaza Strip. If Hamas managed to take complete control, then the Israel Defense Forces would be able to relate to Gaza as a hostile territory. That's the end of the quote from Haaretz. The subsequent course of events was not unanticipated in Israel. 
as Arnon Soffer, the architect of the plan to separate and isolate Gaza, put it in a 2004 interview with the Jerusalem Post, when two and a half million people live in a closed-off Gaza, it's going to be a human catastrophe. Those people will become even bigger animals, this sort of language is all too common in Israel, than they are today. The pressure at the border will be awful. It's going to be a terrible war. So if we want to remain alive, we will have to kill and kill and kill, all day, every day. That's the end of the quote from Soffer. Israel long encouraged the rise of Hamas. As the Wall Street Journal reported in 2009, Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation, says Avner Cohen, a Tunisian-born Jew who worked in Gaza for more than two decades. Responsible for religious affairs in the region until 1994, Mr. Cohen watched the Islamist movement take shape, muscle aside secular Palestinian rivals, and morph into what today is Hamas, a militant group that has sworn to Israel's destruction. Instead of trying to curb Gaza's Islamists from the outset, says Mr. Cohen, Israel for years tolerated and in some cases encouraged them as a counterweight to the secular nationalists of the Palestine Liberation Organization and its dominant faction, Yasser Arafat's Fatah. Against this, may I offer another quote from Auden's poem, We Must Blow One Another or Die. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of the first movement of Beethoven's String Quartet No. 13, performed by the Yale Quartet. It's one of the most sublime pieces of melancholy I know. Next, Joan Didion, the subject of a new book by my next guest, Evelyn MacDonald. Didion was born in 1934 in Sacramento, a city in the capital of a state that figured prominently in her writing. During her senior year in Berkeley, she won an essay contest sponsored by Vogue, a magazine she spent seven years at. While there, she also wrote for National Review, whose founding editor, William Buckley, recognized her talent at a time when few other editors did. She and her new husband, John Gregory Dunn, moved to L.A. in 1964, where they stayed for 24 years when they moved to New York. Starting in the mid-1960s, Didion became famous as an essayist and a novelist. She wrote five novels, and her essays have been collected into well over a dozen books. Evelyn MacDonald examines her life and work in a book just published by Harper One, The World According to Joan Didion. Evelyn MacDonald. Reading your book, it's really struck me um, how much a creature of the 20th century Joan Didion seemed like. The sensibility, the age of anxiety and all that Auden, Larry Burstein, age of anxiety business, but also the relationship with editors and the, all the thought and collaboration that went into the writing and then all the space she was allowed um, to think seriously. Does it feel like she is from another time, like really significantly from another time to you? In those ways, yes, <laughs> definitely a nostalgia for long-form writing, investigative journalism in which you're really given that space and that time and that money and that care and editors sit down with you and go over every word. Something you and I experienced early in our careers, I'm sure, and um, that seems pretty MIA today. Yeah. And yeah, and I was just also getting like paid as well as she got paid. In that sense, sure, and also capturing maybe a, a California that's gone by, um, and California as uh, the center of America in in a way that's romantic and environmental and liberating and beautiful. So I think there's a certain nostalgia, but I mean, what I have really found, and and now that the book is out, I think I'm seeing this even more, is how relevant she remains to new generations of readers. 
you know, I've seen this with my college students, of course, but I kind of thought that was because I was assigning <laughs> them Joan Didion to read. Um, and then they were responding. But I've discovered that young people really love Joan Didion. And in part, maybe because she's describing an era that they have a fascination with in the 60s. And But really, I think it's about her her writing and her voice and the fact that she, she was very personal and relatable while talking about very complex and, and sometimes horrible subjects. So, I mean, I think there's sure there's a nostalgia in wanting to read her, you know, writing about Haight-Ashbury and Jim Morrison and Charlie Manson and those, those things. But I think that, that a lot of it is just the way she wrote about writing that still inspires those of that generation who are still readers and writers. Now, you mentioned her relationship with California, the California myth, which, as you suggested, is now looking pretty tattered. But she she obviously loved the place, but then she left it, went back, left it again. And then you talk about how she linked California to a critique of Manifest Destiny, American Empire. What about the role of California in her imagination? Right. I think that if you're not a John, Joan Didion reader already or you're looking for um, a place to start, I would actually start with where I was from which is her book about her relationship to California. And it's essentially the book where she says, as she once said about New York, she says goodbye to all that. And she completely breaks down her personal estrangement from her roots, her mythic um, and, and real roots as a fifth-generation California and granddaughter, actually, of people who dug for gold. She says goodbye to all that she she completely turns on that mythology that she was raised to be very proud of and and she pulls on other writings and including that new yorker piece about lakewood and the spur posse and speeches she gave at riverside and at uc berkeley pulls together these elements from her past it's interesting she published that book after both of her parents were dead so it i think it took them being gone for her to be able to say, you know what, this whole myth about the frontier and pioneers being beautiful people, it's hogwash. It's interesting she uses the past tense in the title too. Yes, where I was from, I know. It's so purposeful and it's so it's so Joan Didion. One little substitution of one small word just conveys so much. Well, you mentioned uh, in your uh, writing about uh, her coverage of El Salvador, her essays on El Salvador, that her view of the American empire was one of her recurring obsessions. Does that relate to the, the California obsession? Yeah, absolutely. David Reef said this to me when I interviewed him. The American empire was one of her great subjects. And she saw herself in complicit in imperialism. She you know, recognized her, her family's involvement and hers as a privileged white woman. And she saw that all across the Western hemisphere and in, in the global south, her subjects were always pretty much like South and West, as as one of her books was called, you know, including, you know, Central America, El Salvador, um, and Hawaii, of course, and the Pacific Rim in her novel, Democracy. You know, here's where Empire stops, she said in, in uh, one of her essays about California and the Pacific Ocean. But, of course, it didn't stop there. It did go across to the islands, um, the Pacific Islands. And she tackles that. And, you know, I, I, and she writes in Where I Was From about her connections to her ancestors and particularly the women in her family who were sort of brought along on these adventures of imperialism, right? That were settlers and colonizers. And she talks about it as this existential moral failure. And that's p- pretty much what most of her books are, are about. Most of her novels are about the women embody that in their lives. They've been brought along in this ride that turns out not to have a happy ending. You quote her saying that she lacked a social conscience. She just wanted people to tell the truth. What exactly were her political convictions, if any? I mean, she had that early time with uh, National Review. Was that just because William Buckley recognized her talent or is any more significant affinity involved? Well, it's certainly part of it is that William Buckley not only you know recognized her talent, but was willing to publish her when you know other publications such as Time magazine were not so open to women. Uh, before National Review, it was really just the women's magazines, Vogue and Mademoiselle, that she wrote for. But then, you know, she broke through at National Review and, and then Saturday Evening Post and Life and, you know, eventually The New Yorker and 
uh, New York Review of Books. And she did come from a, a conservative family. You know, her father was a, you know, a land baron and, and her mother was interested in the John Birch Society. And Joan herself was a Republican early in her life, voted for Barry Goldwater. She didn't have like, it wasn't necessarily predictable politics. Like she hated Ronald Reagan. And I think that was part of her real turn away from the Republican Party was, you know, when he became governor of California. And she ultimately became what I would say was progressive. I mean, she didn't really like to take on these labels. She didn't wave the flag for any particular party. But, you know, ultimately she was a friend of Jerry Brown. She could criticize what she called political fictions from either side of the political spectrum. She really saw Washington, D.C. and politicians as being out of touch with America and Americans. And that was ultimately where her politics were and what she was critiquing. And and that was happening on all sides of the spectrum. Now, despite being groundbreaking as a woman writer, she got into fields that were previously mostly male. She had a very ambivalent relationship to feminism and the label feminist. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah. So again, not one to label herself. She, I'm sure she never called herself a feminist. She never really identified her politics, although I swear once, somewhere in, her, in all my readings, I, she said, if I suppose if I were anything, I was an anarchist, which I thought was really interesting. She wrote a, a famous story called The Women's Movement in like 73, I think, that was a pretty biting critique of the women's movement at that time of, you know, second wave feminism as we would call it. Do you have your students read that? I have not because, you know, I would maybe have them read it if it, if I were teaching a class on feminist writing, which I have done, but not for a while. And I, and I didn't teach it then. I'm not sure that it would make that much sense to them now because it was, you kind of have to know what she was critiquing. I think in a women's history course, of, maybe it would work, but it's also, I wouldn't say it's like, one of her best pieces of of writing just from the point of journalism. But it's an interesting critique because, you know, some of it is stuff that became accepted criticisms of uh, second wave feminism not being welcoming enough to diverse people and points of view. And some of it is just feels like she's out of touch and that she's sort of turning on her sisters a little bit. You know, on the other hand, women were often at the center, they were at the center of all of her novels and she wrote beautiful essays about like Georgia O'Keeffe that were absolutely feminist in in their take um, without having to you know wear it on their on her sleeve. I'm speaking with Evelyn McDonald, author of The World According to Joan Didion, just out from Harper One. Her sexual politics were a little odd too about men. I mean, she had this John Wayne fetish, right? And uh, she liked big rude men. Howard Hughes. <laughs> yeah, she. She liked, I don't know, John Wayne, Howard Hughes, for people that she had early crushes on. Um, her husband, John Gregory Dunn, was, you know, apparently a great raconteur, very funny, loved her dearly, but also had an incredible temper and was a bit of a kind of cliched boozer, brawler, you know, Irish writer guy. I think part of this was because Joan was very petite, very small and I would say somewhat fragile physically. And I do think that she wanted that feeling of being protected. And also she was shy. And so having someone who was like boisterous um, and would answer the phone and carry the conversations for her was also convenient, but she doesn't present a, a picture of like a strong independent woman in that way. Uh, on the other hand, her relationship enabled her to pursue her craft. Like she had a supportive husband and, you know, pretty hard for two writers to have that kind of supportive relationship. And they did it and they both had successful careers and he didn't seem to mind that hers frankly surpassed his. Yeah. um, And then he dropped dead and then her daughter died. I mean, what a a double blow of tragedy. I I saw her in the book tour um, after the book came out and um, it was really heartbreaking. It was obviously she was still suffering from the grief. It's just uh, unimaginable. It must have been um, very and very intense and and, and distressing for someone to go through that. Yes. Yeah. So her book, The Year of Magical Thinking, you know, was her best selling, you know, the book that most people if they've read any Joan Didion um, or the, you know, the many people who've read Joan Didion, that's usually the starting point um, or if it's the only thing you've read. You know, I think that part of why 
it was so tragic. Well, certainly that these two events happened on top of each other, right? The daughter got very, very sick. And after they came back from the hospital where she was in a coma, the husband collapses of a heart attack and dies on on the spot. And then 20 months later, after multiple um, hospitalizations and procedures, the, the daughter dies also. It was just the three of them, right? There were no, they had no other children. They had such a strong nuclear family. They were such a like tight unit. They traveled together. They worked together to all of a sudden be so completely alone after decades. Yeah, she, that's why she calls it the year of magical thinking. It was just her reality completely changed. Well, at first she didn't want to get rid of John's shoes, though, right? <laughs> you might need them when it comes back. Yeah. Her, what, nephew, is it? Griffin Dunn? You quoted him saying, uh, she had this, I'm shy, I'm a frail bird. I'm a scary, scary goddess of doom, and I write about death and all that. But she's funny, and she loves to laugh. I mean, really, um, it's quite a contrasting set of images around her. Uh, and you know, just looking at some of the photos in the book, but also, um, you know, I've seen many photos of her elsewhere. She's really very visually striking. How do all these images fit in with the writing? She had this personality that extended beyond uh, the page. Right. So she is almost as famous for her photographs of her as for his, her writing, right? And, you know, those pictures of her um, with her Corvette Stingray taken by Julian Wasser it adorned so many dorm rooms and Instagram posts. So she was a, a you know striking strawberry blonde um, petite woman who had a, a strong sense of fashion. I mean, when she was a kid, she read women's magazines such as Vogue religiously, and she was obsessed with fashion from a very young age, and then went to work for Mademoiselle and and Vogue. Well, it's interesting. She learned a lot about writing while at Vogue too. Yes, she definitely learned the the craft of tightness, of you know writing captions or or just short news items, the economy of, of journalistic magazine writing, absolutely, which she then uh, gave up completely when she started writing for the New York Review of Books. So you know, and I think she also learned, and she, I mean, she said this that working at Vogue, attending photo shoots, she understood how photo shoots operated. And I think she learned how to pose for cameras very well. So she, yes, she, and, and her image is like this, this sort of cool, she's usually not smiling. And, you know, I think that's part of what's compelling. One of the things that I found in researching the book was there was, there really was another side to Joan Didion that she was very warm and personable and funny and loved to laugh in her relationships with other people. And she liked to cook uh, for people, but didn't really eat very much for the food. Yes. Yeah. She, she loved to cook. She loved to host dinner parties. She loved to entertain and she wrote letters. Uh, she wrote beautiful, warm letters to people. I've seen many different letters, you know, whether she's just checking in with someone or condoling them on the loss of, of a child or a loved one. Uh, so that, that very personable side of Joan it was nice to see that. I don't think it's something that everybody saw or that she necessarily showed to the world, but it, it was definitely there. Yeah, finally, um, you're, now that the book is out and you're probably getting hearing from people, uh, talking to people um, who are reacting to it. What is the, uh, the state of Joan Didion appreciation these days? I mean, is she widely um, revered? Uh, people discovering her for the first time? or uh, How's it look to you? Yeah, as, as I said, I'm, I'm really constantly surprised by particularly the younger people who uh, are responding to her and seem to, you know, follow her and create book talks about her. So, you know, and, and certainly, I mean, since her death, there's been so many articles and news stories and tributes to her about her. I mean, there's also backlash, there's criticism, there's some, there's some serious and, and not entirely off-base critiques out there. There's some that might be entirely off-base, but there's some that I think are really smart and we have to think about. I think that, you know, as much as she did break from her past, she could have done it more. She could have done it in a, in a more public way. She could have, there's things she could have acknowledged. Such as, like what do you have in mind? She admits that, the, you know, the California dream was a, a bunch of hooey, but she, 
she doesn't really talk about like what California was before uh, white people got there, before the Spaniards got there, or before her family, our, her ancestors, my ancestors got there, right? She doesn't really even talk about that much about its Mexican past, although she obviously uh, was very aware about it and, and, you know, wrote a beautiful story about the orchid grower. They named the daughter after a Mexican place, but uh, it used an anglicized pronunciation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I think those are valid criticisms, but I think that maybe those people also, some, some of those critics, I think, didn't read or didn't really understand where I was from. Because I, I think it's actually pretty remarkable for a writer to like publicly disavow it. And she explicitly like disavows her, her not disavows, but critiques her first novel, Run River, which was about Sacramento. It's funny. I could never imagine explicitly disavowing New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, California is much more um, capacious in the imagination than New Jersey ever would be. Right. Well, she also came, you know, she also tore New York apart in her, in Sentimental Journeys, her story about the Central Park rape case, which was not just about that incident, but about the whole, you know, history of lies that New York has told the world about itself in terms of um, failing to acknowledge the class structure and the the racial hierarchies of, of the city. Yeah. Now, she spent more time in New York than she did in California, is that right? She did, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, not what you'd think. No, no. I, I think she wanted to get back later in her life, but, but then, again, she didn't. So how, how much could she have wanted it? That was Evelyn McDonald, author of The World According to Joan Didion, just out from Harper One. Evelyn will be doing a number of appearances across the country in the coming months to promote the book. You can find a list on the events page of her blog, populismblog.wordpress.com populismblog.wordpress.com That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a Bob Dylan song that Patti Smith performed at Joan Didion's memorial. This version, recorded at an L.A. hotel last December on what would have been Didion's 88th birthday with Tony Shanahan playing guitar, was posted on Smith's Substack. Till next week, bye. Between sundown's finish and midnight's broken toll, we ducked inside the doorway, thunder crashing as majestic bells of bolts struck shadows in the sounds, seeming to be the chimes of. Strength is not to fight flashing.